Holbrook laureates, Academy members, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. The Holbrook Prize was established by the Norwegian Parliament in 2003. The intention was to raise the status of arts and humanities, social sciences, law and theology, and to increase society's awareness of the importance of research in these fields. The Holberg Prize awards three prizes within its fields. These are the main Holberg Prize, which is international and worldwide. The Nils Klim Prize, which is awarded to young researchers in the Nordic countries, and the School Prize, which is awarded to high school students in Norway. The Holberg Prize is administered by the University of Bergen on behalf of the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research. The university has appointed a board for the prize. As the chair of the board, I would like to thank the American Academy of Arts and Sciences for inviting us to organize this event at the Academy, which is a perfect arena for providing information on the Holberg Prize and for discussing important issues within the fields covered by the prize. It is great to be here and it is great to see so many distinguished guests. The Holberg Prize is named after Ludwig Holberg, who was born in Bergen in 1684 and became professor at the University of Copenhagen in several of the fields covered by the Holberg Prize, including metaphysics and logic, Latin, rhetoric, and history. He also studied theology and made contributions in philosophy and law, nothing less. He emphasized empirical research based on inductive approaches. Holberg traveled extensively in Europe and was influenced by humanism, the Enlightenment, and the Baroque. He played an important part in bringing the Enlightenment to the Nordic countries. Holberg is considered to be the founder of modern Danish and Norwegian literature, and he is well known as a playwright, in particular for his comedies and satirical works. The Holberg Prize is awarded annually to scholars who have made outstanding contributions to research in arts and humanities, social sciences, law or theology, either within one discipline or through interdisciplinary work. The laureate must have had a decisive influence on international research. The prize is worth 4.5 million Norwegian kroner equivalent to approximately 577,000 US dollars. Thus, the Holberg Prize is one of the world's largest annual research prizes in these fields, which also makes it one of the most prestigious academic prizes in the world. The idea simply is that this prize should be the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in fields where there is no Nobel Prizes. The first Holberg Prize was awarded to Julia Kristeva in 2004. We have had eight other laureates from the arts and humanities, Frederick Jameson, Ian Hacking, Natalie Davis, Jürgen Kocka, Michael Cook, Marina Warner, Stephen Greenblatt, and Honora O'Neill. Four of the laureates are social scientists, Jürgen Habermas, Schmuel Aschenstadt, Manuel Castells, and Bruno Latour. One laureate, Ronald Dworkin, is from the field of law. So far, there has been no laureate from theology 
although history of religion is the specialty of one of the laureates within humanities, uh, Michael Cook. The formal ceremony for the prize takes place in Bergen in June every year. The Holberg Prize laureate receives the prize from His Royal Highness Crown Prince Haakon. Next year's ceremony is on the 6th of June. The selection of the laureate is based on nominations of candidates, university professors and scholars at other research institutions, including academies, are entitled to nominate candidates, and deadline for nominations is the 15th of June. I would like to encourage you all to nominate outstanding candidates for the prize. There are some variations from year to year as to the number of nominations and the distribution of candidates on disciplines and countries. For next year, we have received nominations of 81 candidates. 47 of the nominated candidates are from arts and humanities, 34% from social science, 15% from law, and less than 5% from theology. 54% of the nominated candidates for next year are from North America and 33% from Europe, while less than 15% of the nominations are from the rest of the world. We would like to encourage nominations from all over the world. It should be emphasized that uh, this geograph geographical distribution, though, does not refer to where the candidates are born, but where they are working, in other words, their institutional affiliations. The nominated candidates are evaluated by an academic committee which is appointed by the board of the Holberg Prize. The Holberg Prize Committee consists of five internationally renowned scholars and is currently chaired by Professor Pratap Panumeti from the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. The academic committee selects one candidate who is recommended as the laureate. Based on the recommendation from the academic committee, the board of the Holberg Prize makes the final and formal selection of the Holberg Prize laureate. And this year's laureate, I mean next year's laureate, will be announced on the 14th of March. Finally, I would like to express our great gratitude to all of you for joining us this evening. In particular, I would like to welcome former Holberg laureates Manuel Castells and Stephen Greenblatt, who will discuss the status and importance of research in the social sciences and humanities today from the perspective of their respective disciplines. Furthermore, it is a great pleasure to welcome well-known journalist and writer Eliza Griswold, who will moderate tonight's discussion. Eliza, the floor is yours. Please. Thank you. So it is truly an honor to introduce these two amazing laureates this evening and to sit in conversation with them a bit. Um, we will all be sitting in conversation together. You will notice that there is a pen and an index card at your place. You, you will be called upon to ask a question, if you so choose, a little bit later in the program when we begin talking to one another. Um, the audience will be asked if you have anything you'd like to ask, please feel free to jot it down. We will collect those cards and then we will, we will talk about them a bit. So thank you. So it is my honor tonight to get to introduce this conversation uh, on the relevance of the humanities and the social sciences to the world today. 
And obviously, we have two of the foremost scholars in the world to discuss the issue. Um, I am going to first introduce Stephen Greenblatt. The format is Stephen is going to come up and speak to us, uh, and then Manuel will come up and speak to us. Then they will be in conversation together, and then we will, we will open it up with, with your participation in written cards, and we will, we will continue the conversation a bit more. So Stephen Greenblatt is Kogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. He's the author of 13 books, including The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve, The Swerve, How the World Became Modern, which is the winner of the 2011 National Book Award and the 2012 Pulitzer Prize, and Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare. In addition, he is general editor of the Norton Anthology of English Literature and the Norton Shakespeare. His honors include the MLA's James Russell Lowell Prize, the William Shakespeare Award for Classical Theater, two Guggenheim Fellowships, and the Distinguished Humanist Award from the Mellon Foundation. He was president of the Modern Language Association of America and has been elected to membership in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and the American Philosophical Society. He was also named the 2016 Holberg Prize Laureate. For his citation for the Holberg Prize, um, this is, I'm going to read to you a bit from the citation. His work has, has had immeasurable impact on the practices of history, literary studies, and cultural criticism well beyond his own specialist area. He has provided us a vocabulary through which we can approach the task of understanding our times and its history. His work has been animated by the idea of life as art and as art revealing something important about life. He has fashioned new methods by which the relationship between the word and the world, the text and the context can be understood. Stephen Greenblatt is one of the most important Shakespeare scholars of his generation. He will be in conversation tonight with Manuel Castells, which is so much fun to get to introduce both of these guys and to hear a little bit about them from their own mouths because reading them is remarkable. But hearing them, I've had the pleasure of being on a call, just hearing them riff to one another a little bit about what, what their minds contain. And I hope that we get you, to let you in on that pleasure tonight because it's truly remarkable. Manuel Castells is currently University Professor and Wallace Annenberg Chair in Communication and Technology at the University of Southern California. He is as well Professor Emeritus of Sociology um, at the University of California at Berkeley, where he taught for 24 years. He has been for several years the Marvin and Joanne Grossman Distinguished Professor of Technology and Society at MIT. He has received 24 honorary doctorates, the last one from the University of Cambridge. Among his 30 published books, his trilogy, The Information Age, Ec Economy, Society, and Culture, translated into 22 languages in which he developed his concept of the network society as the social structure of our time. Manuel Castells was awarded the Holberg Prize in 2012, and his citation began as such. Manuel Castells is the leading sociologist of the city and new information and media technologies. His ideas and writings have shaped our understanding of the political dynamics of urban and global economies in the network society. He has illuminated the underlying power structures of the great technological revolutions of our time and their consequences. He has helped us to understand how social and political movements have co-evolved with the new information technologies. 
So with that, we will invite Stephen up to speak to us, and then Manuel will follow him, and then we will hear them talk. So thank you. And thank you all for being here. Uh, winning the Holberg Prize is an extraordinary life experience, one which I uh, wish could befall everyone and uh, should befall everyone as I look around uh, this company in the room. Uh, and not only because, as uh, you've heard, it carries a large purse. Uh, it's an occasion to take stock and to ask oneself what one has been doing but not, as usually is the case, with middle-of-the-night dismay uh, and self-doubt, but rather with a blend of surprise and deep gratitude. The prize, as you, you've heard, covers a wide range of fields, basically those not honored by the Nobel Committee, but in my case, the focus was on the value of the humanities and of humanities scholarship. In my acceptance speech in Bergen, I recounted my own personal route to a lifetime of engagement with literature, dwelling in particular on the ambivalence of my response to The Merchant of Venice and on the strange way that that play manages to insist on the humanity of its despised and villainous Jewish moneylender. The assignment of this evening's event is to step back from the personal uh, and to reflect on the importance of my field in our contemporary world. And here I feel slightly less confident than I feel talking about my own personal route. For centuries, the academic disciplines uh, that go by the name of the humanities, the study of ancient and modern languages, philosophy, literature, art, and music, have occupied a central place in the liberal arts curriculum. The magical power of works of art and of masterpieces of thought to reach across vast tracts of time and space their exploration of the expressive potential of the human mind, their ability to capture the whole range of experiences from the most exalted to the everyday, make them an essential resource for education. Those entrusted with the task of shaping the minds of the young have long believed that sustained and directed immersion in the humanities provides crucial equipment for living. And though this immersion can be exceptionally demanding, as anyone who's tried to master Latin grammar or to follow Dante step by step around the spirals of hell, purgatory, and heaven can attest, the rewards are comparably great. It's deeply pleasurable to enter the sensibility of a different place and time, to hear a new voice, to be touched by an unfamiliar culture. It's critically important to escape from the narrow boundaries of our immediate preoccupations and to respond with empathy and understanding to lives other than our own. It's moving, even astonishing, to feel that someone you never met is speaking directly to you. But it's no secret that the last few years have witnessed a significant decline in the number of students who elect to major in all humanities fields, including such related disciplines as linguistics, archeology, span and history. The decline which is linked to a comparable rise in majors in STEM fields, has been attributed to multiple factors, above all, perhaps, to anxiety about the economy. Some students who might otherwise choose to pursue an interest in the humanities are afraid that by doing so, they will have difficulty finding suitable employment 
after graduating. It's often pointed out to them by people like me that these fears are misguided, that employers value the skills in critical thinking, contextual understanding, and coherent expression fostered by the humanities, and that many professors, professions such as law, business, and medicine welcome such skills as prelude to their own specialized training. But in the face of the gnawing concerns of students and often the stern warnings of their parents, these reassurances are only partially successful. There are other factors as well that have reduced the number of humanities majors and that pose a significant challenge to any attempt to extract the full measure of enlightenment from its objects of study. In a world in which distraction reigns, savoring works of literature, art, and philosophy requires quiet focus. In a society in which new media clamor for attention, attending to words on the page can prove difficult. In an environment in which we're constantly bombarded with images, stopping to attend in a sustained way to a single painting or sculpture or photograph is surprisingly hard to do. And in a period obsessed with the present at its most instantaneous, it takes a certain effort to look at anything penned earlier than late last night. The truth is that the network society, analyzed with such depth of insight by Manuel Castells, may have rung the death knell for the humanities. The sheer pervasiveness of digital media, their profoundly addictive qualities, an addiction in which I include myself, the way in which they process information in very small, discrete units, the dizzying rapidity with which images come and go, these and many other features are more than casual distractions. They seem to be radically retraining the attention span, the reading habits, the visual and musical culture, in short, the mind and the sensibility of the entire world. I'm not interested in uttering a Jeremiah against what is happening. What, after all, would be the point? Though there are terrible downsides, the network society and the digital innovations that have enabled its triumph are too desirable and in many ways too genuinely beneficial simply to wish them away. At the core of what is beneficial, in my view, is, to use an old phrase, the advancement of knowledge. And though I find the pace of the cultural changes unprecedented, I do not think that the changes are themselves altogether new, nor is the pressure that they bring to bear on the humanities. The network society, insofar as I understand it, and I, I tremble slightly to make any statements of this kind in the presence of Manuel Cassels, the network society was anticipated in the 17th century by the Royal Society, and its implications for the future were already imagined in Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, with its teams of research scientists in Solomon's house, gathering information from all over the world, exchanging ideas, testing hypotheses, conducting experiments, and carefully recording and sharing the results. And for Bacon, the great project of discovering the truth could only flourish if the mind was purged of illusions in which the humanities, as he understood them, were deeply implicated. Hence, the idols of the tribe, the idols of the cave, the idols of the marketplace, and the idols of the theater. 
The fulfillment of Bacon's remarkable vision was realized in the 19th century, to take a single example, in the work of Charles Darwin, whose achievement depended not only on his own empirical observations in the Galapagos and elsewhere, but also, and crucially, on his vast network, a network of correspondence. It was through his astonishing array of pigeon fanciers, amateur fossil hunters, dog breeders, weekend geologists, botanizers, birders, and the like, that Darwin amassed the data that he used to test and shore up his key insights. Toward the end of his life, in the autobiographical sketch he wrote for his family, he weighed the personal cost of this achievement. Up to the age of 30, or beyond it, he reflected, poetry gave me great pleasure. Even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare, he wrote. I've also said that formerly pictures, by which he means paintings, gave me considerable, and music, very great delight. But now, for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have tried lately to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I've also almost lost my taste for pictures and for music. Darwin was honest enough to acknowledge that he has lost his taste for the humanities. He knew that what had happened bore some relation to the work he'd been doing, that is, to the network of correspondence constantly sending him new information. My mind, he wrote, seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. But why this should have caused the atrophy of that part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend, I cannot conceive. Darwin did not regret the stupendous work he had done. He understood when he was writing this the full magnitude of what he had accomplished. But he lamented its effect on him. The loss of these tastes, he wrote, is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character. I'll return to Darwin at the very end of these brief remarks, though I do not have a straightforward answer to the problem that perplexed and distressed him. But the key point here is that the study of the humanities, unlike, say, the study of geology or evolutionary biology, is not a history of progress. If I'm ill, I do not want my doctor to treat me with therapies that were in vogue in the 1690s, heaven forbid, or even in the 1990s. I want what is most current. And even if I recognize that, it that what is most current will someday soon seem quaint and outdated, perhaps entirely wrong-headed, I nonetheless opt for the latest course of treatment. For I'm confident that my doctor is a trained professional who keeps up with the most recent medical advances. And I'm confident, too, that these advances are based on rigorous scientific method, supported by elaborate and sophisticated data collection and circulated in the network. But none of this is true for the works that represent the great achievements in the humanities. The works themselves do not chart an upward history of improvement, nor do the attempts to understand and interpret these works. Of course, scholars of literature, music, and art have long assembled vast numbers of facts, using them to correct mistakes, illuminate obscurities, and establish context. This was already true for ancient Alexandria. Moreover, there's currently in the field known as the digital humanities an energetic effort to mine the vast online textual, visual, and musical archives that are now available. But the results, interesting as they are, do not constitute 
anything like progress in the knowledge of anatomy that can be traced, say, from Galen in the second century of the Common Era to Vesalius in the 16th century to the MRIs and CAT scans of our own time. There are human enterprises in which we expect and indeed demand the latest and most advanced version, not only medicine and biology, of course, but also astronomy, mechanical engineering, geophysics, and computer science. But the humanities are not among those enterprises. Still more startling is the fact that the work studied in the humanities so, show so little progress. Their equipment for living, but the age of the equipment does not matter. Or, strangely enough, its distance from our own immediate circumstances. Let me remind you of the paintings on the walls of Lascaux or the Grotte Chauvet in southern France from 30 to 32,000 years before the present. The, if you've had the privilege to see any such things, even to see images of them, but seeing in reality the way they look on the walls of the cave, taking advantage of the buckles and, and uh, depressions in the walls, you are overwhelmed and justly so. And it's extremely difficult to understand how they could possibly have been done and the time scale at which uh, you're looking at these works, some of which actually we know from carbon dating. Some of them had begun, and then the artists returned to the interior. Artists returned to the interior of the caves, risking the cave bears that lived in them up to 5,000 years later and completed some of the same paintings using the same style 5,000 years later. It's almost impossible to grasp. Uh, there are very re few representations of human figures, almost none, in the earliest cave paintings, but they do bear the marks, strange marks, of human presence in the form of handprints. I was talking about these today with uh, Dean Kelsey, who's here, the, the uh, prints that are made in two different ways, one by covering the hand with uh, pigment and pressing it on the walls, other by blowing pigment around the fingers and leaving the handprints, so two different forms uh, of, of uh, printing uh, from 30,000 years ago. Uh, and it's not only paintings that have been found in those caves, uh, though those are the most astonishing and accessible, they've also found bone flutes from 30,000 years ago. And they've not only found uh, bone flutes, even though we don't have access to them, uh, but some of those uh, paintings also uh, possess uh, images, very few humans, but strange images, like the one in the Grotte Chauvet that shows the head of a bull, but then the head of the bull is attached to the body of a woman, uh, female legs uh, and genitals. Uh, or there's the Villendorf Venus from 25,000 years before the present. Or there's the Lion Man from the Hövenstein Stadel Cave carved out of mammoth ivory 50,000 years ago. And these images suggest not simply the rep visual representations, but also stories, narratives. So we have, from the earliest traces of ourselves as a species, we have uh, narratives, and we have music, and we have images. And we can judge from the images, the others are representations we don't have because of the time that's passed, but we can judge from the images uh, that they're among the greatest works of art ever created. That's the weary, the, the eerie and unsettling uh, aspect of them. The reindeer from Fond de Gome, painted around 17,000 years ago, are not better, let's say, than the Tang oxen 
or Rembrandt's great side of beef or Picasso's bull, but it would be obviously untrue to say that they're worse. And the same is true of the literature that we possess, uh, not from so long ago because we don't possess any of that, but from as early as we can get. Certainly from Homer, uh, the Orlando Furioso, or the Fairy Queen is not better than the Odyssey uh, or the Iliad. Uh, and uh, even the earliest surviving work of literature, Gilgamesh, which dates from about 2100 BCE, even in its broken and fragmentary form, clearly has much of what we most value in the greatest works of literature, vivid characters, narrative power, and an encounter with the deepest questions of life and death. So we're back to the place where we began, which is the strange absence in my field of any sign of progress. Given the fact that the earliest works we know are already so astonishingly powerful, one question that follows is, how do new masterpieces ever emerge? They evidently do not do so by replacing what's been created, so that we simply discard the paintings in Lescaux or the Gilgamesh or the Iliad, consigning them to the attic and embracing newer and better versions. What happens instead is a history of radical innovations, explorations of uncharted territories, and aesthetic surprises. Bao Juyi's Song of Everlasting Sorrow from 9th century China, Murasaki Shikibu's Tale of Genji from 11th century Japan, Dante from 14th century Italy, Cervantes' Don Quixote from the 17th century, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice from 19th century England. The list obviously could be extended indefinitely. Uh, after the work has appeared, it's possible for scholars to reconstruct some of the sources and analogs that's made it possible. We all gather around, people like me, and explain how that happened. But these are always only in retrospect. No one could have predicted them ahead of time. I've said that I would return briefly to Darwin before I come to a close, as I'll do so now. Uh, what I want to observe is that the Darwin I was citing earlier was a man near the end of his long career, and indeed very near the end of his life, looking back after decades of sifting through data, grinding out general laws, as he put it. His key intellectual breakthroughs, however, the ones that changed the course of the world, came when he was quite young in the course of his voyage in the Beagle in 1831-32. On that voyage, he had with him Lyle's great book on geology, but he also had his two most beloved books, Shakespeare's works and Milton's Paradise Lost. That is when Darwin's mind was at its most incandescent and original, and then, at that moment, he was still passionately engaged with the humanities. Thus, it was not only out of Victorian sentimentality, I think, that he went on in his autobiographical musings to reflect, if I had to live my life again, I would have made a rule to read some poetry and listen to some music at least once every week. For perhaps the parts of my brain now atrophied would thus have been kept active through use. And I commend this policy to you. Thank you. Good evening. I uh, would like, first of all, to thank all of you for your presence here and uh, the Holbert Foundation for 
giving me the opportunity to share some of my ideas and experience with such a distinguished audience. The Holbert Prize, from all, in comparison with all the other distinctions I have had along my 50 years long mm -hmm. academic career, uh, is the one that made me most proud and I appreciate most sincerely because it's a prize that is uh, creating standards of excellence in areas which other prestigious prizes such as the Nobel Prize and others do not usually consider and therefore extends the, the mantle of recognition to work that all of us do uh, in areas which otherwise would remain as minor areas. And yet, uh, that I think is the purpose of this session to emphasize the fact that humanities and social sciences, and I would add law and theology, which are part of the uh, Holbert Prize, are fundamental intellectual scientific activities uh, for the fate of humanity. Um, and these areas not only are always had been, as my colleague uh, Stephen Grimblatt uh, showed, essential for the uh, understanding of who we are and what we want and what we don't want. But it's more important than ever in a world in which we are living in fast change where meaning is lost in the swamps of post-truth, which I call lies, and where legitimacy of traditional institutions in all fields are being shaken. In that sense, humanities and social sciences are now essential more than ever to build human consciousness in our historical period, a time of troubles. I will try to do as... Uh, my colleague, Professor Gimlet, did with humanities. I will try to do some similar exercise with the social sciences, uh, which for me, as for many in, in my profession, are sciences, not elucubrations, not fantasies. Sciences with a different kind of object and methodology, but not necessarily less rigorous than other fields of science. We do not surrender to the idea that there are the hard sciences and the soft sciences. There are sciences that have to adapt their methods and concepts and style of research to their object. And of course, it's not the same if we move from one field to another. But the rigor, the methodology, the epistemology should be similar or we'll never be able to build a language that is common to entire human knowledge. That's my perspective. And that's what I would like to um, express briefly um, from the vantage point of what I know, having dedicated 40 years of my life to the study of the social, economic, and cultural transformations related to, not produced by, the extraordinary revolution, in this case it's not a hyperbolic statement, that has taken place in the since the 1960s and 70s in information and communication technologies that have become, to a large extent, in interaction with social and institutional processes, the sources of power, wealth, and meaning in our world. Because our world is this network society. We want it or not. 
We, can, we may regret it, we may hate it, but it is what we are in, and therefore we have to know it. The same way in which the industrial society that emerged from the industrial revolution in interaction with the transformation of class societies, of the nation state, etc., was the industrial society where we live and through which we, we managed to survive with atrocious wars, with tremendous uh, levels of exploitation. But that was our society. And the network society is our society. So we have entered blindly this storm. And the absence of scientific knowledge during this process of entering a new form of social organization has been replaced by utopias and dystopias from Silicon Valley's and Luddites of the new type, propagated by the media, in spite of the heroic efforts of some journalists who try to do differently, uh, that have obscured our capacity to tame and direct this process of multidimensional change. We need more than ever to know what we are doing and where we are because the speed of what you are, we are doing and the depth of the transformation is truly unprecedented for a very simple reason. We are made of information and communication. We humans are information and communication entities. And if the way we inform ourselves and communicate and relate and communicate with everything else are deeply, totally transformed, this transforms every aspect of our lives. How? Well, that's exactly the role of social scientists, not of ideologues, not of poets, although poets could interpret the nonsense of the sense. So, but in fact, we know many things, many things. Social scientists, we know many things about this transformation. There are, uh, there are dozens and dozens of rigorous research institutions around the world studying this transformation, particularly more recently. When I started this in the late 1990s, not many. Um, but um, I, I remember I am uh, a member of the Scholars Council of the Library of Congress, and when someone uh, in the council said, well, in fact, the internet is not very important, and we don't know anything because, for instance, it should be important in education, but we don't know anything about what happens in education. So, oh, really? Uh, you want an entire bibliography on exactly empirically what we know about the impact of uh, internet in the classroom and in the minds of the children, in the minds of the teacher. So, oh sure, within 10 minutes I send 125 references linked to specific sources in different languages about that topic. Because that's what the internet allows us to immediately go into a data bank and diffuse. And then some people may criticize this, some people may disagree, but we know many things which are not known by the public at large. And that's one of the roles to keep doing this work of digging in the society we are building or destroying both ways. Because you know about all these dystopias about internet, it's very simple. Internet is us. It's a mirror, refracted mirror of what we are. And therefore, since I don't have a great opinion of the humankind, uh, I, I'm more Hobbesian than Rousseauian. Uh, so all the horrors that we are are reflected in the internet. And you know what? I think it's good because we can look into this mirror and realize our reality. 
our distorted humanity, our hypocrisy. In that sense, uh, I think revealing the truth about our civilization, our dreams, our nightmares, by looking into what's happening when we are alone in our web. Doing that is a great exercise of sanity and therefore ultimately maybe of redemption. So let me just add a few facts to see how social science is able to counter this uh, inability to understand the world we live in. First, I remind you some elementary facts, elementary facts, in terms of the speed of this transformation, thinking that information, communication, and fundamental human activities. The first survey of internet users in the uh, mid-1990s, 1990s, not prehistoric, was about 40 million users. We now have 4.5 billion users, and, and, and of these, 80% are users of social media networks, meaning computers online, uh, on a phone. The number of um, wireless devices, numbers, subscribers, not phones, in 1991, first survey, were 16 million of these numbers of subscribers. Today is 7 billion in a planet of 7.5 billion, meaning the entire humanity is connected, is connected and is connected electronically, for good or for bad. Should we try to understand what's going on and modify our views on what is being done and what is normal, abnormal, Politically important, not important? Well, that's at least what I have tried to do because on, the, on this particular basis, uh, I ultimately called the Network Society because when I started this mega research on the uh, transformation of every domain, what I found, my, my book originally was not called Network Society, it was called Flows, and the librarian at Berkeley already have decided to classify in geomorphology. Um, and what I, I call it networks, right? Because I found networks everywhere. Networks organizing everything. Why? Networks are a very old form of humankind. Very old. We always have been living and working through networks. But networks always had a great advantage for human interaction and a great problem. The advantage flexibility, adaptability, coevolution, everything. The um, problem, the difficulty to coordinate execution of any task or of any collective action beyond a certain size, certain level of complexity, and a certain velocity. So what happened is that the emergence of these powerful new networking technologies linked to a society in which networks were a demand, both in terms of business, in terms of social activities in terms of culture, the combination of this supply and demand by historical accident, no necessity, around the 1970s, created this extraordinary dense network form on the basis of a common language, digital communication. In 2010, one of my students, Martin Hilbert, published a major article on the basis of his dissertation, was published in the journal Science which happens to be serious. And in that article, he calculated for the first time rigorously 
the amount of information existing in the planet and in which form is, and in which platform this information is. He calculated that 97% of the information in the planet in terms of bits is digitized, is digital information, including, of course, film, music, and everything that is bits of information, which means that everything can be interacted, connected, related, recombined, and therefore providing the basis for a constant, massive recombination of everything we do, from the personal life to the scientific life to the business or political life. <coughs> Important thing of the networking logic is that everybody thinks about networks as communication devices. And for instance, globalization is a network of global networks. It's a global network of global networks. That's what we call globalization. So we are all together. All the activities are connected. No, because networks have a key characteristic. They communicate and they incommunicate. They connect and disconnect. So what network, the networking logic at the global level has allowed is that everything that has value according to the programs of the networks meaning financial value, political value, cultural value, is connected. And everything, meaning territories and people who have no value or little value or less value can be easily disconnected and the system reconfigures around these uh, black holes of humankind. There are so many myths about what is and is not internet because everybody thinks that because we use computers and we are on the World Wide Web, we already know it's our experience or the experience of our children or whatever. Well, no, you have to, do, to be a little bit more rigorous by the same way in which by looking at stones, you don't know the force of gravity unless the stone comes on your head. So, for instance, so many media reports say internet, the use of internet isolates, alienates, makes people unhappy and completely destroyed in their sociability. No, all the empirical research for 10 years has shown that the more you use internet, the more connections you have, the more sociable, the more active, and in fact, it's cumulative with face-to-face -face sociability. Increases sociability, not decreases sociability. In decreases alienation, doesn't increase alienation. Of course, if you're alienated, you're alienated uh, for other reasons. But even in those cases, internet decreases slightly. Uh, this, for obvious reasons, because people can connect. Particularly important for women. Particularly important for women who had been for a long time isolated, more isolated than men in the world of the home. What is important is that the form of sociability has changed from the traditional voluntary forms of associations and groupings in the neighborhood at work, etc., etc., has been largely replaced by what we call network individualism. Individual network to other individuals on the basis of their allegiances and the basis of their taste. Sometimes can be terribly negative in human terms because therefore you don't see the people you don't want to see. But it is not isolation, it's not end of sociability, it's another type of sociability. In what internet has done is to increase everywhere the sense of autonomy, the ability of people to build their own life, their own culture, their own projects, and the most important expression of this has been in the field of sociopolitical mobilization. 
what I call network social movements, that have bypassed the traditional structure of bureaucratized unions, politic, mainstream political parties, etc., and they have created their own forms of spontaneous organization, which are seen as a challenge by established corporations, established media, established political systems. And in that sense, to some extent, uh, is trouble. It's a serious trouble. Governments hate internet, in fact, or they would like to have a tame internet to do the things they like, but not the things they don't like. I have been in endless governmental commissions about uh, the role of the internet. I was advisor to Kofi Annan, the Secretary General of the United Nations, about the potential effects for internet of development. And the first question always is, how can we control internet? And when I say, ah, you can't, uh, then no more interest. Because the issue is, of course, to keep the monopoly of power in information and communication, which has been the source of power throughout history. And internet is a direct challenge, a direct threat to that. Substitute by democracy, mm, yes and no. If by democracy we understand that any social actor, anyone who has a little computer or a little mobile phone can in enter the world of global communication and relate to anyone, yes. If, what the, if by democracy we understand what we like to call democracy, meaning channeling everything through established institutions and voting every four years, etc., then no, that's a mess. That's really chaotic. It's really chaotic. And the question is, do we accept that we live in a society in which the traditional institutions cannot control anymore the channels of communication, or we try, as the Chinese do, try to control every possible thing, always failing, because something else that is happening beyond. Business has been transformed based on networks and on flexibility. And the most important thing of that is that there has been, as a result, a individualization of the management labor relationships. Everybody subcontracting everybody. Um, we did a study in California showing that if by traditional forms of employment, we understand people working full-time for a company for more than two years, this is about 20% of the labor force. Everybody else is in some kind of arrangement, networking arrangement, because companies are networked, that connect to networks, that connect to networks, and this is part of the technology of networks that now they have available. It's not the technology that determines, it's the strategies of new business flexibility and organization. So how to navigate in this ocean of information and signals? In principle, the key should be the greater cultural and educational capacity of people to discriminate. However, the flow of lies and have lies has become too large for individuals or civil society organizations to create counter-information flows, particularly because of the massive use of bots, of robots that uh, accelerate and amplify these lies throughout the network. So if our president tries to run the country and the world by propagating lies and threats over Twitter in the middle of the night, we cannot do much about it. We comment it on it, we react on it, and we, by doing so, 
we increase the centrality of his figure and of his lies, precisely because we go into the discussion and we uh, are always ready to, to read or listen to what he's saying. Therefore, the media themselves are overwhelmed by this flow and cannot organize the public debate, in partly because their legitimacy has been eroded. You know, the time of the good media always saying the truth is also a myth. Remember some, uh, some newspaper, kind of serious, New York Times, reporting that weapons of mass destruction had been found in Iraq and directly linked to the beginning of the Iraq war? That was the New York Times. And one can cite many other elements because the media also uh, purvey the ideas, the interests of different groups. What has happened is now is free for all. It's not just the New York Times. Anybody can say anything. Chaotic, yes. Are we ready to live in chaos? Because if we are not, if we cannot find ways to manage chaos, we are in a bad dream. Because this is not going to change because we refuse to see the reality. And in that sense, some help at restoring truth in connection to professional journalists that still exist, heroic usually, and in connection with citizens at large, this restoring of truth has to come from independent, reliable academic research validated by the global community of scholars, defining our standards of historically relative, always relative truth. It has always been our mission, and this is essential in a world of unprecedented transformation polluted by post-truth. This is the social relevance of social sciences nowadays, and this is not a self-serving statement by my way of acknowledging the mission that the Holbert Foundation is accomplishing for the goodness of humanity. Thank you very much.